What do you consider to be among the most pressing issues of our times? Well, we might consider the state of the economy as something that concerns us, the ability of our children and relatives to acquire high-paying jobs. We may be concerned about the housing crisis and the cost of living, paying rent or mortgage. Many of these issues, issues regarding the environment, are all matters that we reflect upon. And all of these are important. All of these are of value. But there are issues that are timeless. There are themes that are always relevant. And we come to a passage in the Scriptures which, though was written thousands of years ago, is still valuable and relevant for our times. We find three themes in the first chapter of Second Chronicles that were relevant then and are relevant now. The book of Chronicles, in fact, we talk about the books of Chronicles, Chronicles 1 and 2, but really there were one original book in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. They were only divided when uh, the book of Chronicles was translated into Greek. There were those who believe it was written by Ezra the scribe. And it is a book that is one and two chronicles that divide into four major sections. The first nine chapters of one chronicles really is a recounting of history or Israelites' history from the time of Adam. And then from chapter 11 of one chronicle to chapter 9 of second chronicle, Some 29 chapters are taken up with the account of David, his reign, his preparation for the temple, and then the reign of Solomon. The remainder of chapter of the remainder of Second Chronicle, from chapters 10 to 28, deals with the kings of the divided kingdom, and then the end of Second Chronicles narrate the fall of the northern and southern kingdom until the return under Cyrus. What we want to do is to take a look then at the first chapter of Second Chronicles. Here we have Solomon as a newly installed king of Israel. And the chronicler will portray him as a servant of, of the Lord to do the will and purpose of God. That is, essentially to build the temple. You will find, for instance, that in there are these nine chapters devoted to, to, to Solomon in Second Chronicle. And in fact, from chapter 2 to chapter 7, it's all about the building of a temple. Only this first chapter in chapter 9 deals with other stuff in his life. And so his main purpose was to build a temple. And the chronicler is selective in the material that he uses. Much of the story about Solomon, found in 1 Kings, is not repeated by the chronicler, not because history is not important to him, but because he has a particular purpose to reveal to us Solomon as the one whom God has used to build the temple. And so he bypasses some of the glaring flaws in Solomon's life. He does not say anything, for instance, about the many wives that he, he possessed. And so 
his intention is simply to bring attention to the work of God in which he was involved. But in chapter 1, we see three divisions, verses 1 to 6. Then we notice verses 7 to 13 and verses 14 to 17. So the passage breaks down in these three sections. Verses 1 to 6 is the first section, verses 7 to 13, and then verses 14 to 17 at the end of the chapter. But what the writer does, what the chronicler does, is that he highlights three significant features in Solomon's life. And the first of them is worship. Secondly, the subject of wisdom. And thirdly, the subject of wealth. So the three significant features of his life that I want to reflect upon is this matter of wisdom, or rather of worship, of wisdom, and of wealth. Verses 1 to 6 then reveals the priority of worship. The chronicler begins the Solomon cycle with a, with a summary statement of the consolidation of power in Jerusalem. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. In 1 Kings, we find in chapter 1 and 2 how Solomon actually moved against his enemies. He removed, in fact, executed Adonijah, his older brother, who had royal pretensions, pretensions to the throne. He executed Joab. He exiled Abishar, the high priest. And he executed Shimei, who had cursed his father. And so what you find, the first thing that he did in terms of, in terms of consolidating power was the removal of those who were threat to the throne. But here, in our passage, we read that he strengthened himself. And the writer stressed that the Lord was with him. That the reason that he was strengthened then in his reign was because the Lord was with him. This is a, a refrain that runs throughout the Old Testament. We first heard this statement by the writer Moses in Genesis, referring to Joseph, how he prospered in Potiphar's house because the Lord was with him. We see the same statement reoccurring in the time of the judges as they went into the land and conquered the tribes of the land, the Canaanite tribes. We hear that the Lord was with them. This statement reappears in First Chronicles regarding David. We read that the Lord, in fact before that, the Lord was with Samuel. And with David we heard that Saul was afraid of him because the Lord was with him. And that whatever he did, David that is, prospered because the Lord was with him. He behaved wisely. Well, when the statement says that the Lord was with him, it means that the Lord prospered. That the Lord granted favor and brought prosperity to those with whom he's linked. And that is what is happening here. Solomon is strengthened. Solomon is exalted. But it is because of God who is with him, the favor of God is upon him. You see, ultimately, 
the sufficiency of Solomon as king comes from the Lord. Paul says our sufficiency is from the Lord. It is God who makes us sufficient for the task that we encounter. It is he who gives us success in life. And this is what you find here with Solomon. And then the writer shows us that the first official act that Solomon engaged in was that of worship. You will find that verses 2 all the way down to verse 6. The first thing he did, officially as king, was to worship the Lord. He was the greatest person in the land, in the greatest office in the land. But he made it his first duty and obligation to recognize that God is transcendent, that God is superior, that, that the throne of God is above his throne. And the narrator teaches us that he showed his allegiance and fidelity to a greater authority that is to God. What do we note about his worship? First of all, this worship of God is one that rests upon a prior relationship with God. He is a chosen of God, just as his father was. There was already a pre-existing relationship with God, and worship of God flows out of a relationship with God. But secondly, and perhaps now more pertinent to the text, his worship was communal. This is not clearly revealed in 1 Kings. But we read that Solomon spoke to all Israel. And by that, the writer means in verse 2, the representatives of the people. And so he assembled the military commanders. He assembled the judiciary and the governors and the tribal leaders in order for them to go up to Gibeon to worship. And we read, furthermore, that Solomon, in verse 3, and all the assembly with him went to the high place which was at Gibeon. Now this word, this, this, this description of high place generally referred to Canaanite cult, cult uh, sites. So basically referred to pagan religious sites, the high places. And we just call the high places because uh, the the pagans who lived, the Canaanites who lived in, in, in Palestine, generally had their worship places or places of centers of worship on the top of mountains or here high hills. And so it was called a high place. And what has happened here is that Gibeon, which is, of course, in the territory of Benjamin, in the highland of Benjamin, had in Gibeon a cult center where Canaanite worship took place. And what had happened was Israel, having moved into the land and taken over the land, had now repurposed this high place for the worship of God. And so they decided they were going to go up to Gibeon to worship. We read, Solomon and all the assembly with him went up to the high place that was at Gibeon. For the tabernacle of meeting with God was there which Moses, a servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. It is interesting that David, and in fact he will go on to tell you in verse 4, that David had already brought up the ark, the ark that was in the tabernacle, that movable tent that went with Israel in the wilderness. 
David had brought that ark to Jerusalem and housed it in his own tent. There is a harbinger that God intended to move worship centrally to Jerusalem. But Gibeon was still the place where the tabernacle that was in the wilderness, the tabernacle in which Aaron served, was there in Gibeon. And the writer says that the bronze altar, that was the altar that was built before the tabernacle, where sacrifices were offered, that was still there in Gibeon. And so this is what Solomon does. Because the, the, the shrine where God was worshipped was still at Gibeon. He assembled the leaders of Israel with him and he went up to Gibeon to worship. You see, his worship was a prescribed worship. Because the Lord had commanded Moses to tell the people of Israel, you shall seek the place where the Lord makes his dwelling in Deuteronomy 4.29. And so he went to the prescribed place of worship. His worship was communal. It was prescribed because it was in the right place, the place where sacrifices were offered. But perhaps the most important element regarding his worship is that the writer clarifies that worship is essentially seeking the Lord. Worship is essentially seeking the Lord. He states, now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Ur, had made, he put it before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him there. That is in verse 5. He sought him there. Literally, the text says he sought it there. That is the, the altar. But it is, to be very clear, it is the Lord who is worshipped that Solomon sought. The writer describes his worship as a seeking of God. In verse 5, he says, Solomon and the assembly sought him there. It means he worshipped him there. This term, daras, occurs some 137 times outside of Chronicles. It means to strive eagerly, to exert great effort in order to find and you will find that outside of Chronicles, it is used in places to refer to worship. It is a synonym to, for worship. So to seek God is a synonym. And we, I quoted to you from Deuteronomy 4 where it says that you shall seek the Lord where he dwells. Well, it means you should worship him where he dwells. We find, for instance, in Exodus 33, 7, where seeking God is used as worship. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So they were worshiping. They were seeking God, but it was worshiping. This term, daras, to seek, and in the context of seeking God, daras occurs some 29 times in Chronicles. And it is also used there as a summon to worship. For instance, when David brought the ark to Jerusalem, he exhorted the people to praise God. In fact, he had a psalm for them in which he exhorted them in 1 Chronicles 16 verse 11. He says that they are to give thanks in verse 8. They are to sing, that they are to sing psalm, that they are to glory his name in verse 10. And then in verse 11 he says they are to seek the Lord. So seeking the Lord 
must be construed as an act of worship. And one, in, in fact, in, in, in 1 Chronicles, seeking the Lord is qualified because the leaders, at least the religious leaders, the Levites, are told to seek the Lord with all their heart. And David, in giving instruction to his son Solomon, he says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the Lord of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the, heart, of the thoughts. If you seek him, if you worship him, he will be found by you. If you seek him and worship, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9. So to seek God is at the heart of worship. It is a striving after God, a striving to cleave to God. And this is what he does. He goes up to the high place at Gibeon, seeking the Lord. You see, worship is to not merely sing hymns, but with a heart that longs for, that goes out to God, that delights in, that seeks out communion and fellowship with the most holy God. This is what Solomon did. If I may point out one more aspect of his worship, not only was it communal and prescribed because he worshipped where God intended him to do so, not only was his worship a seeking of God, but his worship involved sacrifice. For in verse 6, we are told that when he came to the bronze altar that, before, that was before the tabernacle of meeting, that he offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. A thousand burnt offerings. This was an elaborate offering, suggesting tremendous generosity on his part. Tremendous fidelity, a thousand burnt offering he offered up to God. And so you see, worship not only involves seeking after God, but it involves sacrifice to him. Well, we've seen first then the centrality or the priority of worship in the life of Solomon, as the text relates. But in verses 7 to 13, we see a second aspect of his life, a second characteristic of his life. We see secondly the indispensability of wisdom. Verse 7 actually marks an important turn in the narrative. Because whereas Solomon was a central figure in verses 1 to 6, God becomes the central figure in verses 7 to 13. And here we have the first direct speech given where God appears at night, even the setting changes because now it's night. And the implication is that, of course, that when Solomon went to Gibeon, which was some five or six miles away from Jerusalem, that he stayed there the night. He didn't return. The text will show that. And the Lord comes to him at night. The Lord appeared to him. In fact, in 1, in 1 Kings, it says that the Lord appeared to him in a vision. So he had a dream. And God spoke to him. And what the Lord says to him was rather relatively brief. The Lord says, ask, what shall I give you? This is God's encounter with him at night in a vision. This is a monumental offer to him. Essentially, God is offering Solomon the whole world. Ask, 
And I will give you, that's the implication. Of course, we know that God only gives the things that are good and are according to his will. But here, there is no hedging. There is no bounding of the offer that God says, just ask, and I will give you. Now, can you imagine if, if God were to come to you in a dream? Let's say you, you had a dream from the Lord. The Lord says, ask me. Just ask me anything, and I'll give it to you. Just ask. Well, I don't know what you would ask for, but we probably would ask, Lord, make me the richest man on this planet. We probably would say, Lord, you know, I have some people around who are quite annoying. My neighbor, could you take care of him? And at work, my boss gives me a lot of problems. We, we could find a lot of things to ask God for. But Solomon doesn't do that. He does something which is totally unexpected. It's, not a, it's unexpected in the narrative for us. We, we have read this. We understand it. It doesn't seem strange, but it is from a human point of view, a shocking request that he will make to God. But before he goes to God and says, give me, he addresses God. And he says to him, he says to the Lord, you have shown great mercy to David my father and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this great people of yours? He first of all addresses God and reminds him of his covenant with David. He reminds God that he is a covenant God, a God who was shown not mere mercy, but love, covenant love, loyal love to David. You see, it's important that you understand that when God deals with his people, he deals with them in covenant, and Solomon goes back to the covenant with David. He says to the Lord, you have shown mercy, you have shown hesed, covenant, loyal love to my father David. You need to know that when God deals kindly with us, he deals kindly with his people in covenant, in this solemn commitment that he makes. You cannot read the Old Testament without realizing that covenant, in fact, binds the Old Testament together. We believe there was a covenant that God had with Adam and Eve, a covenant of works. There was a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses and with David, and we are recipients of a new covenant because God always engages in a solemn binding agreement with his people. And so he invokes the image of God's covenant with David and says, Lord, you have covenanted yourself in hesed, in love to my father and ostensibly to me. Fulfill your promise. In fact, therefore enable me as king to have a kingdom and to fulfill your will. This then leads to the request, where Solomon makes this startling request to the Lord. He asks the Lord, in verse 10, now give me wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge. Whereas knowledge may refer to intellectual comprehension, wisdom was the ideal gift. Hukmah in the Old Testament was not seen as essentially theoretical, 
or intellectual chokmah, wisdom, was seen as moral and secondly, practical. And so, for instance, you will find that the artisans who were the ones to build the tabernacle and to decorate it, they were, to- they were said to be people who were given wisdom in terms of those who were able to administrate over the political affairs of Israel, they were people of wisdom. It was therefore seen as practical. And therefore we would consider wisdom as the skill of right living. He was asking God not only for knowledge, but for wisdom, the skill to make right judgment and to live properly, to execute God's will, that noose, that knowledge, that wisdom, that insight, that discernment that was required. He was asking God, give it to me. And why? Because he realized on one hand, he recognized his own deficiencies. He recognized his own weaknesses and the enormity of the task of leading and judging God's people. You see, you, see, you understand this, 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 this call of, to God for wisdom reflects his values. He was not asking God, I want to be the wisest man on earth so I could just go around and befuddle people with my wisdom. He was not asking wisdom for himself. He was asking for wisdom and for knowledge in order to do God's bidding. Because fundamentally, he valued God preeminently and he wanted to do God's work in the right way. But he needed divine help in the form of divine wisdom given to him. The text says in verse 11 that the Lord was pleased. The Lord was pleased with his request because the Lord said to him, because this was in your heart and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked for long life, but you have asked for wisdom and for knowledge and for, your, and for yourself you have, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. The Lord agrees to his request and grants him wisdom and knowledge. In fact, we will learn at the end of Solomon's cycle how great his wisdom was. We see a part of that in the conversation with the queen of Sheba who had heard of Solomon's wisdom, but clearly thought he was overrated. And so she decided she was going to go up to Jerusalem and test him with all of her difficult questions. But in Second Chronicles chapter 9, when she got there, and she asked Solomon the hard questions, he answered her without any difficulty. And the narrator, the chronicler, says that she became faint, became weak. So overwhelmed she was with this man and his greatness. And she responds in verse 9, in, one, in 2 Chronicles 9, verse 6. It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the, their words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told to me. You exceed the fame of which I heard. Solomon was the wisest man in the ancient Near East. He wrote, we are told, in 1 Kings, over a thousand songs, 3,000 proverbs. He authored the books of Proverbs 
on Ecclesiastes, on Songs of Solomon. He lectured on subjects as diverse as the cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He instructed about animals, birds and creeping things and fish. People came from all over the ancient world to hear him. Perhaps the most significant example of his wisdom is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 3. The story of the two prostitutes who came to Solomon. You remember the story. These two women lived in the same house. And they were pregnant. The first woman gave birth to a son. The second woman, about three days afterwards, also gave birth to a son. But she, at night, lay on her son and killed him. When she realized that her son was dead, she took her dead son over to the first woman, took the living child, replaced that child with her dead son, and took the living child in her bosom in her bed. When the first mother woke up in the morning, she realized that the child was dead. And when she examined the child, she realized it was not hers. And so there began a tussle between the two of them for this living child. This is a hard case. In those days, of course, the king was judge, but he only judged the most difficult cases. So here is Solomon, two women fighting over a baby. There's no camera, no photographs of the children at birth. And most importantly, they don't have access to DNA. All he has is these two women fighting over a living child. This one saying, it's mine. The one saying, no, it's not yours, it's mine. What, what, what is Solomon going to do? Well, he may say, well, you know, he may say to them, well, I can't decide which one it is. Why, why don't you take, them, take the child home and both of you raise the child? But he does something far more intuitive and wiser than that. He called for a sword and he tells one of his men, cut the child in half and give a half to one of the mother and give the other half to the other mother. The one, the second woman whose child it was not, thought it was a brilliant idea. She said, well, you know, if I can't have him, well, none of us should have him. So yeah, cut him in half and give me half and give her half. But the real mother said, no, don't do that. Her heart went out for the child. She said, don't do that. Give the child to her. And Solomon, seeing that, said, give the child to the first woman because she is the mother of the child. Divine wisdom. You see, if you are going to do God's work, you must be a worshiper of God as he was. But he also needs a wisdom that comes from God himself, able to penetrate the mysteries of life in order to do God's work. Well, we see the worship of Solomon. We see the priority of worship. We see, secondly, the indispensability of wisdom, that is divine wisdom. In verses 14 to 17, we see the liberality of wealth. Here, Solomon has asked God for wisdom and for knowledge. But the Lord adds something to him. The Lord says to him, in verse 12, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had who were before you. That is, before you, that is Saul and your father David. Nor shall any after you 
have the light. He goes to God and he asks only for wisdom and knowledge to do God's will. God says, I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you honor. We know, and in fact, the rest of the text goes on to show the wealth of Solomon. And the writer describes his wealth in a few ways. First of all, he describes his wealth in military terms and his military strength. So Solomon, after this vision, comes back to Jerusalem and reigned. And we are told that he gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Well, you may not think that that is significant. But in, the, in this period in, in time, having a chariot, and especially a chariot for battle, was considerable. He had 1,400 chariots. You know, they are, the chariots then is equivalent to what we would have now as tanks. And particularly on a plane, fighting an enemy on a plane where most soldiers were foot soldiers, were infantrymen, having 1,400 chariots and horses coming down upon you was a frightening scene. So you see his wealth in then in a well-equipped army. And he had chariot cities where these chariots were housed and the notion is that perhaps they were also used to patrol the trade routes over which he presided. But the writer also describes his wealth not only in terms of his military strength, but also in terms of precious metals. For he goes on to tell us in verse 15 that the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. Do you know, Solomon was fabulously wealthy ridiculously rich. In fact, we read that in 1 Chronicles 22, we read that David gave him a lot of money. In fact, David gave him 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver and other resources. Now, when you calculate 100,000 talents of gold today, it is estimated at something like $45 billion. That's not to talk about the, the monies or the gold that he collected from trade. And the writer says that he made silver and gold so common in Jerusalem as stones. In other words, he was not just taking all this money for himself. He wasn't just enriching himself. He was enriching the people there. He was sharing the wealth that he accumulated. You see some of the wealth that he had in terms of cedar being common. That was a precious lumber used for building the temple. And then you find in verses 16 and following an explanation of how Solomon increased in wealth. So he was importing horses from Egypt and from Keve, which was the eastern part, lower eastern part of Syria. And so, here he was, gathering wealth. We read in verse 17 how he traded in horses with Egypt. And, and if, you, if you read verse 17 clearly, you, carefully, you will see that what, he, what he's explaining here was that, that Solomon was buying a chariot for six 100 shekels of silver, a horse for 150 shekels. And then he was 
exporting them. So he was exporting the chariots and the horses to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. He was therefore a middleman and he was taking his portion as a middleman and therefore he was increasing in wealth. What we find then is not only that it requires wisdom to do God's work, but that God also provides the resources to do his bidding. And we need to recognize that Solomon's wealth was not merely given for his own aggrandization, but it was given for the building of the temple. And secondly, it was given so that his kingdom would be exalted in the ancient Near Eastern world. So that the God that he served would be glorified. In other words, the reason that God elevated Solomon, the reason God made him so rich, was that he might be prominent in the ancient world. And that through him he may become a vehicle of witness to the world about the greatness of their God. That's why people kept coming to him. That's why the Queen of Sheba came. Because you see, God was exalting Solomon and attracting people to him so that they would know that it was the God of Israel who had made him rich. Friends, when we look at a text like this, there are questions today for us as to how we are to live. Surely, you can agree that we are not living in palaces. We are not the son of a king like Solomon was. But there are commonalities in the text that are essential for us, critical issues here that we must wrestle with even now, here and now, in our own times. And the first thing I think that the text would have us recognize is that it stresses that we are to make worship of God our primary concern. This is Solomon emphasizes the necessity of worshiping God. And this is precisely what our generation refuses to do. We will worship anything it seems and everything else apart from God. And let's be clear that what we worship is the things that are more important to us. We have our idols, and an idol is anything that is more important to us than God. Anything that we make the greatest sacrifice for is an idol. Solomon reveals that God is to be chief, that God is to be worshipped. It is a failure not only of his generation, but of our generation, that men refuse to worship God. And that is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Because what God has revealed to man, that is, he has revealed his Godhead, his nature. He has revealed something of his grandeur, his glory, and his power. And yet men choose to worship the creature, the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, the wrath of God is revealed. And you and I must know that our primary job, our primary business is to worship God. And the worship we must give to God must be one that is rooted in a relationship with Him. It must be rooted in the knowledge of the greatness of God. That the one we serve is a transcendent King, the Lord of glory. It must not only be rooted in the knowledge of his greatness, but of his grace. That we have come as his covenant people to know his kindness, his hesed. 
that we have been brought into a fellowship with this great God. And it is out of this recognition of the hesed, the, the kindness and the grace of God and the goodness of God that we are to worship Him. We are to worship Him in praise and in prayer and in the confession of our sins and the sharing of our resources. We are to worship Him from the heart. We are to seek after Him. We are to long after Him. Solomon reminds us that our primary obligation as men and women is to God Himself. That before our jobs and before our families, even before our own lives, God comes first. But you and I need to know that secondly, this passage from Second Chronicles 1 not only reminds us of the primacy of worship, but it also directs us to ask God for wisdom. Well, we think, you know, I wish, I wish the Lord would, would give me that kind of offer that he gave to Solomon. Wouldn't you like God to come and say, ask, just ask me. But I want to tell you that the same God who said to Solomon, ask me, says to you, ask me. What does he say in the New Testament? Ask, ask, and it shall be given to you. The same God who gave this open-ended offer to Solomon gives the same offer to us. Ask. Jesus could say, and whatever things you ask in prayer believing, you will receive. The notion there simply is that God is a generous God who gives. We do not receive because we do not ask. And then when we ask, we ask to consume upon our lust. So the reason we often don't get from God is because we're asking, first of all, first of all, we're not asking, and then when we do ask, we are asking for the wrong things and for the wrong reasons, for our own lust. But one of the things that we must ask for is our needs. But a primary need that we have is wisdom. We are living in an age where we are bombarded by information. We have among the most useless facts at any point in in history that we have today. You can Google anything. But in an age of information overload, we must ask for wisdom. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We need wisdom. We must ask God for wisdom. And where is wisdom to be found? Solomon himself says wisdom comes, it begins with the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But when you come to the New Testament, you will find that Paul, who speaks more about wisdom than anyone else, sees wisdom as bound up with Christ himself. He reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, God has made Christ to become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Moreover, he says in the same passage in verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And what I'm arguing this morning is that if you are to have true wisdom, know how to live, the skill of right living, you need Christ because he is the fountain of wisdom. In him all treasures of wisdom are to be found. He is the repository of wisdom. You see, it is in him and the cross that we see the manifestation of the wisdom of God. The cross, you see, was foolishness to Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. But that which humans ridicule was God's wisdom that overpowers human wisdom. Because in the cross, in the seeming failure and shame of the cross, it was where God redeemed and saved sinners. You see, God's wisdom turns human wisdom into folly. And if you really truly want to be wise, you must know Christ who himself is wisdom. Because in him is wisdom. In him is redemption and sanctification. In him we are saved. And the man or woman who is truly wise is not the person who knows the most facts. But those who are truly wise are those who have come to the cross and have embraced Jesus Christ. Will you receive this wisdom, the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ, by trusting and by believing on him and by turning away from your sins? But this passage also finally, if it tells us that our priority in life is to worship God, and that we're to ask God for our needs, particularly for wisdom, it also invites us to seek. But not to seek wealth, but to seek the kingdom of God. For, for many, the, the, the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, was, was great. People liked Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And part of the reason I think that we like that is because innately we have a desire to be wealthy. We want to be millionaires. And the truth be told, we don't just want to be little millionaires. I'm talking about a little millionaire now, somebody who has like one million dollars. We don't want one million dollars. Most of us have houses. Many of us have houses that are valued around that. No, we want to be multi-millionaires. We could go up into the billions, we'll be more comfortable. We want to be like that fellow who was in a limousine and was hanging out of the sunroof of the limousine. And out of his, in his hands, wards of money flying through his fingers, fingers covered with rings. We would love to have the kind of money where we could just walk down Young Street and just be dispensing it and not even feel that we're losing anything. One of the reasons we desire wealth is because we somehow feel that wealth is a source of pleasure and is the source of power and more importantly the source of security. That in, a, in essence, money is the root to the good life. Well, interestingly, the New Testament speaks much about wealth. In the instance of Solomon, we know that God gave him wealth, and therefore God is able to give wealth, and God still gives wealth to his people today. That the New Testament does not perceive wealth as evil per se, 
But there are many warnings in the New Testament regarding the use of wealth. And Jesus speaks about the danger, the corrosive effects of money. You cannot serve God and mammon, the Lord Jesus makes clear. The Apostle Paul tells us that contentment, godliness with contentment is great gain. We, one of the signs of being a true disciple is to be content with what God gives. But here is how this story of Solomon and the blessing of wealth relates to us today. Solomon sought wisdom. God gave him wisdom and gave him wealth. You and I are called not to seek wealth, but to follow this abiding principle enunciated by our Lord Jesus Christ and typified by Solomon. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what does the rest of the verse say? And he will grant or he will add all these things to you. What does the New Testament say? Like Solomon, we are not to be pursuing money. We're not to be pursuing wealth, but we're to be pursuing God and his kingdom. And the New Testament describes the kingdom of God as true riches. It is the pearl of great price. The pearl that a man finds in a field and he sells all that he has and buys it. You see, true riches is to be under the reign of God, under the rule of God, to be in the kingdom of God. That's where true wealth is. And you and I must ensure that we are spiritually rich. We are to take care and do God's work to put God first. And God will, listen, if you take care of God's business, he will take care of your business. You are to seek first his kingdom. Seek to follow his way. Seek to see his name advance. And God will never leave you empty and dry. He will give you all that you need. He will open springs of water for you. He will feed you with manna from heaven. He will do great and mighty things of which you cannot imagine. Because you honor him. He also will honor you. But when you make the pursuit, I've said before that joy comes sideways like a crab. It never walks straight. Joy comes from the side. If you reach for joy, if you try to live your life for pleasure, you never find it. And when you try to live your life for money, you really never get it because you grow pockets with holes. You work very hard and you amass a lot and you can't understand where it is, it just disappears. You go, go invest it in something like Nortel or Air Canada and then the stock drops and what happens? You are left almost penniless. But when you honor God, God provides. You need to know that true riches are to be found in God, in Christ. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And God has given us riches beyond money. And beyond property, he has given us riches in Christ and ultimately riches in heaven. Seek first his kingdom. Seek his will. Seek his righteousness. Seek to live 
under his rule and to please him by living righteously, and your God will take care of your needs. May God grant that you may be a worshiping people. May God grant that you may be spiritually wise. And may he grant that you will know true spiritual wealth that comes from your heavenly Father for his sake. Amen. Let's pray. Now, Father, we confess that we need you. And that we by ourselves are idolaters prone to worship the creature rather than the creator. We are prone to put the things of this life before you. And we ask that you would help us to acknowledge you, who is our kind and gracious Savior, to love you and to seek you with all our hearts and to pursue you in worship. And forgive us for not being a worshiping people. We pray that, Lord, we may love the place where your spirit and your presence dwell, that whenever your people gather, that we will gather to worship you, that we will put this at the top of our list to be a people praising you because you have been good, you have been gracious. And we pray, Lord, that as we navigate our way through this life, that we might be given wisdom to discern between good and evil, between good and better. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be filled with that wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ, so we may live uprightly and pleasing. And Father, we pray that you would meet all our needs, all our material needs. But help us, Lord, to labor for the wealth that can never be corroded, that thieves cannot break in and steal. Help us to be rich with God. And so, Lord, we pray then help us to gain these spiritual riches that are found only by finding Christ. Sanctify the words to our hearts. Use it, we pray, to build us up in this most holy faith. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.